Chapter 18. Sexual Exploitation. Between 2008 and 2009, we started seeing a recurring pattern on the PPU, whereby teenage girls were regularly going missing from children's homes in Birmingham and staying away for long periods, often up to three or four days. Sometimes they would come back of their own accord, usually heavily intoxicated through drink or drugs, and other times they would be found by patrolling officers in a car with an adult male. Nearly all these girls had very troubled backgrounds. They'd been in and out of the care system most of their lives. The children's homes seemed uninterested in where they were or who they were with, and defaulted to picking up the phone and calling the police to report them missing. We had many children's homes on our patch, and Bev and Martin began spending an increasing amount of time trying to track these girls down and returning them, only for them to walk out the next day and disappear for another two or three days. The girls were not making any allegations on their return, and there was no obvious evidence of anything untoward going on. Initially, this was dismissed as teenage girls being defiant and choosing to spend time with their unknown friends at locations that they were unwilling to tell us about. However, gradually a picture began to emerge of children's homes being deliberately targeted by a group of Asian men who would befriend the girls, pick them up in their cars and take them away somewhere. Initially, no one was making any allegations and the girls' behaviour was viewed as attention-seeking nonsense. I must admit that despite Bev and Martin's protests, initially I too was sceptical that the situation deserved any time or effort from the police. I told them that we had quite enough to do without being distracted by a few attention-seeking teenagers. It was only after one particular incident when one of the girls was admitted to hospital with injuries consistent with severe sexual assault that alarm bells started to ring. She refused to tell us what had happened and she declined a forensic medical examination. Gradually, this type of incident became more and more regular and it became evident that these girls were being groomed, raped and sexually abused by people whose identities we were unaware of and at locations that we didn't know about. But no one was making any allegations and the prevailing culture at that time was that if nobody told us that a crime had been committed, then no crime had been committed. The reality was that the PPU was inundated by other serious allegations and referrals from social services that were prioritised. So these vague and unsubstantiated rumours of serious sexual assaults were passed over. There was also a real reluctance to acknowledge the uncomfortable fact that the majority of this grooming was being carried out by Asian men. Managers from all agencies were terrified of being accused of racism by pursuing unfounded allegations against one specific ethnic group. So it was just easier to stick their heads in the sand and ignore it. I tried to raise these concerns with senior officers, managers from social services and the managers of the children's homes. But we were more or less ignored. They argued that these were teenage girls who were somewhat out of control, 
acting promiscuously and making poor relationship choices. They justified this on the basis that we hadn't received a single criminal allegation of a sexual nature. And therefore, all of these activities were clearly consensual and that these girls were basically prostituting themselves, in inverted commas. Bev and Martin were relentless in their determination to expose what they knew was serious sexual abuse of very vulnerable children who were only 14 or 15 years old. We spoke to our counterparts in neighbouring command units and sure enough, there were identical incidents across the rest of Birmingham. It's easy to ignore one or two people who are saying something, but it's much harder to ignore a dozen people from different places who are all saying the same thing. The DCI crime managers from our four or five of the worst affected command units in Birmingham commissioned an investigation into what was going on. We were given dedicated intelligence analysts and resources to pull together an intelligence assessment of victims, suspected offenders and key locations. Crucially, we also managed to gain the trust of one or two of the girls. They still refused to make any criminal allegations, but they did give us an account of what was going on. The intelligence assessments made for grim and depressing reading. A typical scenario was as follows. Girls were being approached and befriended by Asian men in the general vicinity of the care homes. They would be offered alcohol or cannabis, taken for a drive around the city, and then they would chill without anything of a sexual nature taking place. This would go on for a while, and the girl would then introduce one of her fellow care home residents to her new boyfriend, in inverted commas, who would in turn introduce the girls to his friends. Gradually, there would be an expectation from the men that the girls exchange minor sexual favours for the alcohol and drugs. And they might be given little presents or taken shopping for new trainers. The girls thought very little of this and saw these men, who were generally in their 20s, as their boyfriends. They were being given male attention that they craved and they described themselves as being in love. Generally, a gift of a new mobile phone would follow and then the men would use these phones to contact and control the girls at all hours of the day and night. After some time, the girls would then be asked to provide sexual favours to one or more of her boyfriend's mates, and over time, this would feel quite normal to her. Eventually, she and the other girls would be invited to a party, either in a flat somewhere or in a cheap hotel room, where they would be plied with alcohol and made to have sex with multiple men. It would not be unusual for many adult men who the girls had never even met to turn up at these parties and queue up to have sex with them. The girls would be so drunk that they had no ability to give true consent and the older men outnumbered them so they were too scared to say no. We had discovered that we were dealing with very serious sexual offences being committed against some of the most vulnerable children in society. However, the biggest challenge we faced was that the girls didn't see themselves as victims at all, and they were generally very distrustful of the authorities. They were the product of chaotic, dysfunctional homes, 
and many had been physically or sexually abused for much of their lives. They craved positive affirmation and they had never had positive male role models at any point in time. So this behaviour had simply become a new normal. The men had groomed them so thoroughly and successfully that they felt complete loyalty to them. We knew that it was going to be fantastically difficult to build a successful prosecution against our suspects in the absence of a formal complaint and if the girls refused to submit themselves to physical examinations for forensic evidence. We also knew that it would be easy for defence barristers to tie the victims up in knots and portray them as being promiscuous, willing participants in these activities. We had a pretty good idea who the victims were, even if they'd not all come forward. The victim profile was quite clear. Female, resident at a children's home, mid-teens, regularly going missing and staying missing for long periods of time. What wasn't so clear was the identity of the perpetrators or where the girls were being taken to. The perpetrators were almost exclusively Asian men in their 20s or 30s, but they'd been careful never to use their actual names with the girls. They were known by street nicknames that didn't mean anything to us and returned nothing when searched against police intelligence systems. My team started to brief the response teams and neighbourhood teams and encouraged them to submit intelligence on who these girls were associating with. We made it clear that if the girls were seen out and about with men matching this description, we needed as much information and intelligence about them as possible. Many of the frontline officers were sceptical. Some of them knew the girls and described them as being foul-mouthed and gobby from previous encounters they'd had with them. They struggled to see them as victims, but we tried to explain that these girls had been groomed and brainwashed and that they needed our help. We made very slow progress and the number of missing episodes across care homes started to increase as more girls were clearly being drawn into this activity. The care homes themselves were hopeless about protecting the girls and this helped make the situation worse. They did very little to try and stop the girls from leaving and made no attempt to find out who they were leaving with. We tried to persuade them that in the eyes of the law they had parental responsibility for these girls and on that basis they needed to show more interest in what was going on and if necessary physically prevent the girls from leaving. They made the rather spurious argument that to do this would constitute an assault on the girls and on that basis they were unwilling to put themselves in that situation. It was really frustrating and we told them that most of the girls were going to be raped, pick up sexually transmitted infections and goodness knows what else. But our pleas fell on deaf ears. Eventually however, in November 2009, we got our first real opportunity to mount a credible criminal investigation. Two girls from a children's home in Telford had been kept captive in a flat and a hotel in Birmingham over a weekend and both were subjected to a horrific ordeal at the hands of many different men. My team got involved in the initial investigation and we contacted our counterparts in West Mercia Police to inform them of what we were dealing with. As luck would have it, 
They were already involved with the girls in Telford, and one particular female detective had established a good relationship with them. She agreed to travel to Birmingham and help us interview the girls, and she persuaded them to submit to forensic medical examination. Everything went to plan, and both girls cooperated with us because of the trust that they already built up with the officer. The girls were video interviewed, and I provided us with a very detailed and disturbing account of what had taken place. Gradually, a case was built against a number of local men who were already well known to police for other serious criminal matters. It took over two years for this case to come to court, but in April 2012, Shamraz Rashid was jailed for 11 years for child abduction, two rapes, attempted rape and attempted sexual assault. Amar Hussein was sentenced to 10 years after he was found guilty of child abduction, three rapes and attempted sexual assault. Jabbar Rafiq was found guilty of rape and sexual assault and was jailed for eight years. Adil Salim was found guilty of rape and sentenced to eight years. And Amer Islam Chowdhury was convicted of child abduction and sexual assault and received a jail term of 15 months. Those two girls deserve great credit for their bravery in giving evidence. They should feel very proud of themselves and I sincerely hope that they've been able to move on with their lives to some extent. This, I believe, was one of the earliest successful multi-defendant investigations into what came to be known as Child Sexual Exploitation, CSE, in the UK. It was followed by a great many high-profile criminal trials across the country in Derby, Operation Retriever, Telford, Operation Chalice, Oxford, Operation Bullfinch and Rochdale, Operation Span. Thanks to courageous and dogged investigations by Times journalist Andrew Norfolk in 2011, the scandal of widespread child sexual grooming of vulnerable girls was exposed in the press. For the first time, he shone a spotlight on this most despicable of crimes. He rightly shamed police forces and local authorities into facing up to the uncomfortable truth that fears of accusations of racism had created a collective paralysis that had condemned hundreds of our most vulnerable children to systematic sexual abuse and psychological trauma. Many people have asked me over the years why I think it was specifically Asian men who had been responsible for this sexual exploitation. Quite frankly, I have no idea why this is the case. I will leave that question to the psychologists and sociologists to answer, because I could only guess. What I do know is it has been an incendiary issue and a culture of political correctness across the public sector allowed such exploitation to flourish and go unchallenged for so long. The police service was also culpable in this regard. During this period, many senior officers were too focused on burnishing their politically correct credentials whilst eyeing up their next promotion. I've always tried to do what I believe to be the right thing in the eyes of the law, regardless of the race, ethnicity, colour or religion of the people who are involved. Ultimately, 
In such cases, I will refuse to tiptoe around an issue for fear of upsetting someone. At the start of 2010, I was starting to get itchy feet. As you probably guessed by now, I have quite a low threshold when it comes to boredom. While some people are happy to spend up to 10 years in one particular role, I start to feel the need for a change after two to three years. One of the great joys of policing is that it's an incredibly diverse organisation and the big forces like the Met and West Midlands have a variety of opportunities for enthusiastic people. My advice to anyone who wants a long career in policing is to spend enough time in each role to become competent and gain credibility, but keep moving and keep challenging yourself. I was asked by an ex-colleague if I'd consider transferring to the West Midlands Counterterrorism Unit. This was a difficult decision for me because I'd enjoyed the PPU, but the pull of a return to counterterrorism where I'd spent so many years in London was strong. Ultimately, I agreed, and within a few weeks, I had said goodbye to my lovely team, handed over the department to my replacement, and said goodbye to Stetchford. <laughs>